Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hey! <laughs> Maisha, today we're diverging a bit from our usual content, as we have a scientist on the show. For real, for real. Yeah. Yes, Dr. <laughs> Chanda Prescott-Weinstein is a theoretical physicist and an assistant professor of physics and core faculty member in women's studies at the University of New Hampshire. Her new popular science book is called The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred, which takes a holistic look at the doing of particle physics and cosmology. And if you're thinking that this particle physics talk isn't up your alley, I beg you to do yourself a favor and stay put. Chanda is so fascinating, and this conversation goes beyond just the science itself. You know, it really does. And I, I, I love that you said that, because I admit when we first looked at this book, I was really scared because I quit science like when I was like in high school. I, I, was I like, definitely... Okay. I got my credits and then I was like, but I'm a humanities person and that's what I do. You know, like I picked a college where I did not have to take math or science as a credit. The the science I had to take was like sexual health. Like I had to choose between (laughs) that and astrology. And I was like, I'm going to take sex ed. That sounds much more important than informational. But seriously, you know, one of the things that's really great about Chanda, uh, both in this book and in person, in this conversation, I would even say more so, you know, she really makes physics approachable. And I think what's really cool about, uh, you know, I think you can even tell by her credentials, you know, being, you know, a professor of physics, but also in w- women's studies, like this whole thing is about intersectionality, the intersectionalities of race and gender and queerness and, and experience and marginalization. And I never would have drawn those through lines, <laughs> you know, I mean, even through lines into popular culture, like, you know, like my favorite movie of all time, The Fifth Element. Yes. And, you know, I know you're, you know, more up the Star Trek alley, but like mm-hmm. all of this comes into this discussion. And I would not have guessed that. And I'm so glad that I read this book. No, <laughs> you know? I, I, I thought she was so talented and so fascinating. I was just like, girl, write your sci-fi novel while you're at it. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. <laughs> that, let's get to the interview. Let's do it. Hey, Chanda, welcome to It's Lit. Hi, thank you for having me. We're excited to have you here. You know, it's beyond cool have you with us. Some might say even out of this world, <laughs> given the topics explored in your new book, The Disordered Cosmos. But we're much cooler than that. In fact, we have an icebreaker here and it's lit since this is a podcast about Black books and Black authors, and Black journalists, and Black writers, and, you know, Blackly Black, 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 Black. <laughs> we like to start each episode asking our guests to name at least one book that they've considered a game changer blew their mind, revolutionized like how they thought about writing. What was that book or books for you? I don't like that I'm only allowed to choose one here. This is really hard on me. You can choose more than one. I am. But I'm going to go for my first choice, Kiese Lehman's Long Division. Mm. Time traveling Black kids and Jewish kids in Mississippi. Like, it truly does not get better than that for a Black Jew like me. Like, I, I learned, like, Jewish history and Black history and, and time traveling. And it's called Long Division. And I like math. So, ah. <laughs> 
Well, we're huge nice. fans of Kiesi here, so that that's fitting. And that's a new one that we have not heard before. Yeah, so that's that exciting. Is definitely as well. a new one. I think that will be changing <laughs> as it gets re-released this year. So I hope a whole new audience will get an opportunity to experience the incredibleness that is that novel. Yeah. It, it is exciting. And I and I did hear uh there's some exciting things coming out of that camp that I'm I'm hoping we'll get to explore soon <laughs> with him. But back to you. <laughs> Yes. So. I could just talk about Kiese. That would be fine. <laughs> I love him. Um, he was the first editor who paid me to write. And so, oh, wow. um, and, and that Aww. came in the aftermath of I was a huge fan of the book and reached out to him. And that's how we connected. So, oh, wow. shout out to Kiese. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> so, it's more than a little intimidating to speak with you, to be honest, because you're not only a theoretical physicist with a specific focus on particle physics. But you are the first Black woman in the world to hold a faculty position in theoretical cosmology. And only the second in particle theory? You know, it's actually interesting because I went into writing the book thinking that I was the second in particle theory. And realized along the way that actually when Shirley Ann Jackson became basically like faculty equivalent, that she was actually no longer working in particle physics, that at that point she was already moved into condensed matter theory. So for someone who's actually still actively researching on particle physics, on the theoretical side, I'm the first. And I'm... I should just say, like, actually, like, I realize, like, from the outside that that can sound really cool. But for me, it's actually kind of like a grievous number. Like, it's ridiculous that, like, in 2021, you know, I'm (laughs) young-ish. I'm still not 40, so I'm young-ish. And that should have happened a long time ago. Definitely. That's my feeling about it. You know, that's that's the tough thing about the first. Like, they keep keep still happening. They're still first. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, you know, while it's amazing to honor people for being the first at something, it's also sad that we're still, you know, having to explore this new territory over and over and over again. But it's very fitting in the context of all this that your first book, The Disordered Cosmos, to debut during Women's History Month. But, you know, in this book, you point out that it isn't necessarily a point of pride This is indicative of how difficult it is for Black women and Black people in general to excel in physics. How do you hope the distorted cosmos will feel that discussion? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, like one of the things that drove me as I was writing the book, and the book is a different book than I thought it was going to be when I started writing it, right? Mm. And what it transformed into while I was actually doing it was thinking about what was 17-year-old Chanda in need of when she was starting university, And so really thinking about what does a young Black person of any gender identity, but particularly someone who's who's maybe femme-leaning, what could be useful to say, like, yeah, cosmology is cool. Yeah, cosmology is Black. It's Blackity-Black. But also, you know, to do the things that the, the Carl Sagan, the Stephen Hawking books weren't doing for me, which is say, like, look, there is a social side to this. Your blackness is also going to be touched on in these ways. And you need support in that. Let me be honest with you. Let me be real with you. And I, there wasn't a book that did that. And I think that I could have benefited from that. And so my hope is on some fundamental level that this is something that we can put in the hands of folks and say, like, look, just because it's going to be challenging doesn't mean you can't do it. And just because it's challenging doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. and you belong 
even if there are all these things telling you you don't. And so I think that that, that was a really a, a driving force for me was I'm always thinking about how can I make it so that someone has an easier time than I did. I tell my students all the time, I want them to do better than, than me. That's the goal. Mm. No, that's, <laughs> I think that's a lot. That's definitely a teacher goal, you know, like for a lot of professors. You know, my mother was a school teacher and her goal was, you know, was not just for her students to do well, but she wanted them to exceed, yes. you know, the expectations that she had for herself and for, you know. Yeah. I know she expected me to exceed her expectations. Well, <laughs> right. I mean, I also, I, I have to, I, I'm going to interject just for a second because I think it is important to note that we happen to be taping this. We will not air it today, obviously, but we happen to be taping this on Toni Morrison's birthday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you you basically just said that you 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 did what she always advised to do, which is write the book you would like to see in the world. So shout out to Toni Morrison for that. Definitely, I would just say definitely. I look to the side because I have a carving on my wall. The function of freedom is to free someone else. I'm Toni ah. Morrison. Yeah, so that's mm. a, it, it's, it's right there. And I think those two things go together, right? Which is that we have to free the stories that are inside of us. And in that we connect with other people and give other people permission to free their stories and tell their stories, right? You know, I I think like one of the through lines of of the book for me also is that we are a storytelling species. Mm. And one of the ways that we like to tell stories is through math and through cosmology and black people do that too. And so this is about like, how do we create freedom for people to tell their stories? BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So this is your first book, but really it's like so many different books in one. It's kind of a universe of its own in under 300 pages. <laughs> like the disordered cosmos is ambitious in scope as it manages to interweave physics lessons with social commentary, Black history and feminist theory, and even deeply revealing passages like of a memoir. Any one of these aspects could have been its own book as you write about each so comprehensively. Why was it important to explore all of these issues up front and in tandem? They're all part of doing physics. I think that that's really the key is I wanted to give people a holistic picture of what physics is. When we talk about science, and I have air quotes here, like <laughs> we, we mean a lot of different things. We mean a community of people who are doing what we call scientific work. We mean the work that they're doing. Sometimes we're referring to the data that they're collecting or the ideas that they're studying. So I wanted to give that kind of 360 degree, let's look at it from all angles. Let's look at what it means to be a scientist, to do science, because that's actually something that we don't talk about And actually, I have to say some of it was inspired by kind of my journey as a science communicator. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, right, of kind of the challenges that I face with people telling me that I'm writing science in the wrong voice. 
or that I haven't, I haven't told the scientific story in the right way and saying, mm-hmm. right, I told it the way that I thought about it as a black woman of a particular like background and identity and wanting it to be readable and legible to other black women and black people in general and, and having that rejected. And so actually like part of what's been interesting to me is kind of the dynamic around, is it a memoir? Is it not a memoir? But I was very, Kiese and I had a little bit of a back and forth about this because I was very like, this book is not a memoir. It's just like what Stephen Hawking did. It's just like what Carl Sagan did, except because I'm a black woman, it says a bunch of stuff that their stuff didn't say. And one of the things that I had to kind of sit with is that this book, thankfully, is being engaged by people who don't usually read popular science. Right. (laughs) And who usually read books that are memoirs. And Mm -hmm. they're seeing something that we and maybe the popular science scientific communication community have not been honest with ourselves about, which is that actually popular science often is kind of a memoir of science. Mm -hmm. And I I actually like I I don't think that's what Kiese meant when we were first talking about it. But that was something I had to sit with, which is that if I'm going to write a book that speaks to people who don't usually come to science, and that was one of my goals, then I have to accept that people are going to come to it with their interpretations of the literature that they usually read. And that's been interesting to me, actually. It's been a learning experience for me. Well, you know, I'm glad you said that because I'm one of those people. (laughs) You know, I am actually someone who... And I don't say this with pride, but I abandoned the study of science. Like as soon as I accrued the requisite credits in high school, I was like, no, this is not my ministry. And I was kind of scared to death of this book for that reason. You know, and I'm going to be honest, like the way that my whole left brain, right brain situation is set up, I, it will admittedly take me a few reads to fully understand the whole like protons, neutrons, axions, and quarks conversation. But you know all the words. <laughs> I do know the words. You know all I the do, words. I, I do know the words. I did read it. <laughs> but, yes. you know, and then on that subject, I do know words. That's what I do. I do words. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you deal with pretty heavily in this book, and I, I think effectively in this book, is the semantics of science. And, and we see this in non-scientific language as well. This, this linguistic issue where things are frequently and unnecessarily coded in ways that are essentially anti-Black, right? You know, and, and you take, you especially take issue with like the way we perceive dark matter, which is your, you know, yep. field of study. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, especially in an era where Black Lives Matter has become a rallying cry for far longer, you know, we've kind of seen this wordplay, especially among Black writers with the idea of dark matter. And you argue that this is not only inaccurate, but contrary to what it is. So why why do you feel this is important? For people who haven't read this yet, why do you feel this is important to, to recognize? Yeah, I mean, so let me just like comment on like the words and vocabulary, which is I think that one of the reasons that science can be inaccessible, right, is that it's a language. It's a language. Like, um, it's not it's not exactly like Spanish or French. But it is a vocabulary that you have to pick up. So part of, like, you know, just to say, like, part of the comment that I was making to you is you are using those words, like, with with fluency, right? Like, I'm not sure if, I knew what they meant, though. I know some French words, too, but I don't... Right? <laughs> I was like, what does that mean, though? But, but everybody has to start somewhere, right? And in yes. some sense, like, my goal is to say, like, here is here is the language. It's a, a, a book that could cover the entire universe in, like, 150 pages, like... Okay, I'm Jewish, so uh, the Torah, sure, but <laughs> right, like that's a, it's it's a tall order, right? And so, in some sense, like the goal is to get people saying, like, this is a vocabulary I can start engaging with, and now I have like a tool to come back to if like I'm interested in in, in learning more about this, and then acknowledging that like the, those words have power, 
And there's a reason that like dark matter has been picked up within like the the black community more than like Axion has been picked up, more than Neutron has been picked up, right? And so I think that that's like the connecting piece, which is that like these words that we choose do have power and they work on us in different ways. That like dark matter sounds different, I think, to people who don't think about colorism as a feature of their their lives, whether they should be or not, they should be but they don't. Um, mm-hmm. So here's the thing about dark matter is that it's actually invisible. So the way I mm. would like people to have some intuition for that is if you put your hands out and you pretend that somebody puts like a clump of dark matter in your hand, you will feel your hands weighted down, but you will still see your hands. Like the light will go right through the dark matter, bounce off your hands and bounce into your eyes. So dark matter is invisible, it's transparent, it is not dark. It is not dark in the sense that we talk about like black beauty sometimes. It doesn't have a color associated with it. It is invisible. Light goes through it. And, you know, someone might respond to that and say, okay, but Ralph Ellison, right? I loved Invisible Man. I had a lot of anger yes. after I read it. Same. Yeah. I think people do. <laughs> I had like a lot of anger. But I think I he think, had a lot of anger while writing it. Yes. Yeah. I think he had a lot of and, and you know, I think it's it's a powerful and it's a beautiful book and it's an important reference point. It's important partly because what he is saying is that I have been invisibilized, mm-hmm. right? That that's like the key. The, the invisibility is a social phenomenon that is imposed on Black people. Mm. Dark matter just is invisible. It's different. It is not the nature of the Black person to be invisible. That is the nature of white supremacy to make Black people invisible. And it's really important not to take that crap on, on some level. <laughs> I don't want to put that on your body. I don't want that on my body. That's, that's white, white supremacy's problem. Yeah, I mean, I love you say, I think the way you phrased it in the book was incredible because you said Black people are not invisible. They make our humanity invisible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really such a stunning way to say that. And then there was another word that came up for me when when reading this book, which was intersectionality. And it should be noted that you are not only a theoretical physicist, but also a feminist theorist who teaches women's studies. And I don't know that most people would would naturally correlate the two, but you make a very strong case here for the limitations of any science that is centered exclusively on the genius of white, presumably straight, cisgendered men, right? You know, and again, you know, for those who have yet to read this, and I hope that people do, I hope people don't get scared off by the, by the scientific discussion, because you really, I mean, the through lines are really incredible here. You know, how do you feel that racism and sexism and homophobia, let alone misogynoir, undermine our understanding of how the cosmos work and our place within them. I think, you know, the most basic example that will probably particularly feel familiar to to Black listeners is whether you feel welcome in a space determines sometimes whether you decide to stay in that space, right? And sometimes not always we have the option to leave. And so people are constantly making the decision of like, what level of crap am I going to put up with? And so racism that Black women, for example, experience in graduate school in physics sometimes shapes their determination whether they will stick around for a postdoctoral fellowship or whether they're going out into industry because they're like, if I'm going to get treated like this, I want to make twice as much money as a postdoc is going to pay me. Like if I'm going to be treated badly, I should get paid, right? 
And that means one of the tasks that is before you, particularly as a postdoctoral researcher and as a professor, is we go and we give talks about our research. And that is how we circulate our intellectual ideas. If we are no longer academics, if we are no longer in the field, that means that there's nobody out there advocating for our line of thought, for the research that we produce, for the ideas that we produce. And so you can really see like lines of thought getting dropped because like a black woman walked away from the field. And that's a really like basic example of how knowledge and physics therefore gets shaped by the absence of someone who felt pushed out from the field. And I, I think it's it's like it's worth saying so um, Christy Dotson, he's a black woman philosopher, has this concept of epistemic oppression, which like the idea is that you are oppressed in your way of knowing. So we're constantly being told, well, like that racist incident that you're reporting to us, that wasn't really racist. Are you sure you interpreted it correctly? But our entire job is being good at interpreting data. And so if you're constantly getting the feedback that maybe your brain doesn't work right, that's a challenge. It's hard to go to work and be like, yes, I'm a confident physicist. I don't understand my own personal experience, but sure, I can interpret quantum mechanics. Wow. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's gaslighting. I mean, yeah, it's, like, it I was just saying, I was like, word is the gaslighting. word I think of is gaslighting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. It is. It totally and is. actually, there was, I saw an article today that, um, by a couple of academics who were articulating the word race lighting. So I actually haven't read the entire thing, but I saved it <laughs> because I was like, that sounds familiar. Uh, yeah. So to bring it back to an aspect of the science. So like I am a sci-fi fantasy fan. Like I love comic books. I love Star Trek and Star Wars. I love both hard sci-fi where they try to make it as real as possible to, you know, the fifth element where it's like... Which... I'm the non-science person, and that's one of my favorite movies of all it's time. It's an absolutely <laughs> ludicrous film, and I love it. It's classic. It's, it's amazing. It's yes. a classic. It's, it's epic. A it is ludicrous. I think yes. that's the right word. It's, it's, it's like absolutely ridiculous. Ludicrous. Yeah. And it is so joyful. And just, oh, I so, love yeah, that So obviously, yeah. you know, we're all on the same page here, you know. So what I was really interested in your book is how it intersects with a rising or, in many cases, renewed interest in Afrofuturism. As what Mm. you're offering here seems to be a real-world parallel to these often constructed universes of fiction. What do you think sci-fi gets most wrong about the real world of physics? And as we see more Blackness infused in those narratives, what would you like to see both in the fantasy world and within the real discipline of physics? Oh man, I was like trying, I was immediately starting to think of answers to your questions. And then I kept thinking of counterexamples. So the example I was going to give is like this idea that science always gets used ethically, right? Mm. Um, But actually the most recent season of Discovery starts to grapple with this question of the scientist, of a disabled scientist who has been given an opportunity and is actually doing really unethical things, but thinks that he's doing good things. So I can't even accuse Star Trek of not grappling with that anymore because Discovery really covers it. I I, I don't want to say anything more because I'm sure lots of people haven't seen season three yet because they're woefully <laughs> behind. Um, I mean, I and 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 you know, shout out to Michael Burnham, the character. And, and the, the figure, I, I would say. Um, but I think that that's a really important storyline. And also there's, you know, an early episode in Star Trek The Next Generation where they try and deal with 
what is data? Is data a person? Uh, what is his personhood? And they were clearly trying to draw a comparison with the debates about black personhood, right? Like there's no way that that episode happens without the discussions about black personhood, which is sort of ironic because like, is it episode one of Star Trek The Next Generation has is like a wildly racist anti-black <laughs> There's a planet that is the country of Africa episode. <laughs> this is really bad. And then they had this like really beautiful episode. But so I, I, I would actually say like sometimes what sci-fi gets wrong about science is like these ethical questions. But I've been really happy to see that recently there has been a turn back to that, and not just like Isaac Asimov, but also um, the Expanse is really asking questions about like exploration, again, air quotes, I don't know if that's the right word or not, exploration evokes colonialism. And I think like, in the context of the expanse, that's, that's actually the right word, right? I don't worry so much about like, is it accurate? Is it not accurate? I think discovery has done an amazing job. I think time travel almost always goes badly in science fiction. So I guess I've talked myself into it. Time travel... <laughs> I'll yeah, make a no, face about time that. Travel, like, <laughs> I enjoy a time travel movie, but I'm always like, this, 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 this caused too many paradoxes and problems. I, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I do think that one of the fun things that Star Trek does, like, I just want to talk about Star Trek. No, it's all good. Go for well, it. I mean, I think we have to shout out actually the Star Trek discovery. There is also a yes. an amazing black woman involved with that, Jenny Lumet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, yeah, I'm here for talking it. about it because shout out to Jenny. She's like uh, my PSA. <laughs> like, I love her. So. <laughs> I, I wish like it would make sense for me to turn my camera for you all so that you could see like <laughs> on my desk next to me, I have a photo of me and Sonequa Martin-Green, oh, which I love she's. It. I had her sign. I also have an Uhura Barbie that was signed oh, by wow. Nichelle Nichols. And I also have a picture of Nichelle Nichols that she signed for me. I'm that kind of like start. I have it all <laughs> sitting right here to my left. <laughs> but I love That's that. I me. love that mix of like, yeah, I love that mix of like you, the hardcore physicist with mm -hmm. you, the fan, right? Mm. <laughs> with the sci-fi fan. I think that, that does make, fan. that is so <laughs> relatable. And it also, I think kind of, as you said, it kind of, it doesn't need yeah. to be perfect, right? Like, you, we don't need to be purist and precious about this thing. I think that's helpful. <laughs> so this kind of brings us into the, like, the broader scope of cosmology. Like many other disciplines, physics has historically been centered on American and European interpretations and study. But as you point out, every culture has its own cosmology. You seem to mm -hmm. have hope for a more holistic multicultural approach to your chosen field. How do you envision this happening? And do you think our current racial reckoning is a strong enough entry point? So I do actually think, you know, the way that I come to this in the book is really in thinking through Native Hawaiian struggles over their sovereign lands, unceded territories, and the building of telescopes on, on Native Hawaiian lands. And the way that astronomers try and co-opt Native Hawaiian history of astronomy to argue for why these telescopes should be built, even if Native Hawaiian cultural knowledge holders object to it. And I see that as, I see why it's happening now in the way that it's happening, in part because there's a whole 
generation of Native Hawaiian folks who are who are my age, who are in their 30s and their 20s, who have gone to school in schools that teach their their language, that teach their culture, that teach their history. And it really tells you something that when people know who they are, that they start demanding their rights in a whole new way. Not that they weren't always demanding their rights, but it just amplifies the push. And so I just want to draw that connection to that moment of reckoning that I'm similarly we're seeing those same conversations among those of us in the, in the Black community of trying to figure out, like, what is our Black and STEM history? And I want to shout out Dr. Stephanie Page for creating the Black and STEM hashtag on, on Twitter back in 2014. And in some ways, like, kicking off kind of this, like, social media iteration that, for example, one of the people I talk about in the book is Elmer Imes. He was the second Black PhD in, in American physics. And he did research that played a key role in affirming quantum mechanics, that quantum mechanics was real, that it wasn't just like this wild theory that people were playing around with. So I'm mixing a bunch of things here, partly to say that we're going to come to our storytelling about the world in different ways, and that's okay. The, the real challenge is when we have to kind of adjudicate conflicts. Like people are saying, like, my religion says that I can't have the vaccine. Mm. Then... Mm. Then we're having then we're having a difficult conversation. So I do think that sometimes it's about situating our stories in context. My story with the Torah as a Jew is helping me think through my values, but that's not where my science is happening, right? Like they they do different things for me. When I'm thinking about what do I do with data about the real world, then science is a really useful storytelling technique. And I think that that's I, I really think that reframing it as storytelling can be really valuable. And we don't do enough of that. I mean, it's definitely valuable for me as someone who loves stories and tells stories and, and often, you know, just kind of goes <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I can't science. <laughs> you know, I think it is. I think it does like, create this access point that we don't always see. And again, you know, I cannot express enough to the non-science minded folk like me who might be intimidated by this book. How many amazingly relatable through lines that you you create here, you know, whether it's talking about bringing your whole self to work, right? Or talking about what it means to carry identity even as a sexual assault survivor into your work, right? But one thing that stuck out to me as well, you know, you you identify as a queer and agender woman. And when I interviewed George M. Johnson, who I believe you also follow on social like me, (laughs) (laughs) on their debut book, one thing they said that stuck with me all these many months is that Blackness is inherently queer. And reading Mm. your book, I was, you know, I was thinking about this because, you know, at the time I was kind of like, I've been mulling that over my mind for like almost a year now. And, you know, one could take that to mean fluid or non-binary, but also like rooted in this otherness and this continuous debate and negotiation of the otherness. Would you say that the same is is true of physics or or science in general? Yes. I I mean, and and you maybe see me playing around with this a little bit in the titles of the chapters. Yeah. Yeah. And I I did want, you know, it's so funny you say that because you're, I mean, these chapters are amazing. The physics of melanin, space time isn't straight, black people are luminous. I mean, like, get into it, kids. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's exactly, I was thinking of the space time isn't straight. I had such a good time naming that chapter. I actually, like, I texted it to a fellow queer theoretical physicist, Brian Shuvian. I was like, do you think I could do this? And he was like, yeah, do it. But 
because it's actually like technically correct. Like space time has curvature. It's not straight in the sense that like we tend to think of like a straight road versus like a curved road. That that space time around the sun is curved. Space time around the earth is curved. Where there's a massive object, space time curves, right? So I had great fun in, in drawing those connections and saying that you know, the things that we normalize in the world are simply social normalizations that don't necessarily have anything to do with how reality actually is. Like, most of the matter in the universe is dark matter. So actually, humans are what are abnormal. Uh, Stars are abnormal. The universe is mostly stuff that we can't see. It's not the stuff that we can see. We think what we see is like normal, but that doesn't necessarily make it like average or, or typical or normal. We are actually like incredibly rare and precious for, for that reason alone. So I think in that very expansive view that has come out of queer studies, that queerness is always on, on at the boundary of like, you know, what's normative and what's not normative. And that queerness is, is, is always in the future. Like uh, Jose Esteban Munoz articulated it in, in um, Cruising Utopia. For me, that that's where that concept really comes from. And I think that, yes, Blackness, um, Zakaya Iman Jackson um, just has this beautiful book out about like how Black people have not been peopled in some sense. This is something that we're grappling with. That, yeah, in that sense, queerness is, is part of who we are. And I hope that that creates strength for Black queer people in particular. And for people in the Black community who are still grappling with how to be okay with queerness, that they recognize the strength in that unification and solidarity. Definitely, definitely. So Agreed. we are rapidly Agreed. running out of time. Originally, I was going to ask you. <laughs> Sorry, I no, talk a lot. We I'm enthusiastic. <laughs> no, you're brilliant. It. So it's like we're sitting here like transfixed. But like originally, I was going to ask you about how this book would like resonate with both the science community and lay people. But what I really want to know after you talking about your love for Star Trek Discovery, is there like a sci-fi novel in you? Mm, that's a uh, great question. This is so, you know... That's a really interesting question. The funny thing is, is that like until fairly recently, I was like not at all a sci-fi or a fantasy reader. And that recently changed because one of my beloveds bought me Jordan Ifueko's Ray Bearer. And I loved Ray Bearer so much that I was like, what can I read next? And so I picked up Tracy Dion's Legendborn, which like, I'm just going to evangelize to people about both of those books. You have to read both of like, if I had to mention like other books that have recently been really shifting for me, um, I, I have written some short stories. One of them, I actually did try and get published. I, my fiction writing needs more work, I think. But so far, my interest has really been in, in telling stories about women who are in situations they don't want to be in. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> and, and, and I think like, you know, discovery handles that in some ways, right? Like Michael Burnham is in, again, I don't want to like ruin the show for anybody, but Michael Burnham repeatedly finds herself in these situations that are like, you know, questionable. And she's trying to work them out in a way that feels very familiar to folks who are black, I think, even though her blackness is not articulated openly as an identity in the show. Um, I'm, I, I will just comment that I'm particularly interested in stories about Black love right now. And so season three, Black love, 
I'm very interested. Whenever Black people are writing about Black joy, particularly in this white supremacist world that we live in, that it is futurist work. That in some sense, when we have joy, it is almost science fiction because it's not supposed to be real, and yet we do it anyway. Thank you so much, Chanda, for joining us on It's Lit. It was amazing to have you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, both of you. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Brian Allen. Special thanks to Sarah Chishti. If you like the show and you want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you reading these days? Oh my, what am I reading these days? That's a really good question. Um, I am looking into, you know, I'm a former performer. I don't know, maybe I'm not a former performer. I'm a performer on hiatus. And I am reading <laughs> The Little Devil in America right now. Um, and... and I'm praying I don't get his name wrong, but by Hanif Abdurraqib, which is really about like this history of performance and particularly Black performance in America. And it's not at all what I expected, but it's intriguing. And I know that we're going to talk to Hanif soon, so I don't want to spoil it. Mm -hmm. But I've been digging into that. What are you digging into? More research or something else? It's a little bit of research because I'm looking for books that cover similar topic areas to the novel that I'm writing. So I'm reading Yellow Wife, a novel by Sadiqa Johnson. Yes. And I'm going to revisit Beloved by Toni Morrison because I just feel like I haven't had my mind blown lately. You know you're right. And I think we've had such, such conversations here about language that... I almost find myself in a different place to read that novel now. So I'm glad you said that. And I also have The Yellow Wife in my <laughs> queue. So I'm going to have to check on that. But I'm excited also about this novel that you're reading because although our listeners may know by now that you are departing the route, I assume that you will be coming back to discuss your novel. I, so I would hope so. I would hope so. I would hope so. <laughs> and that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit.